Well, we'll start in Matthew chapter 2 tonight. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some in the chairs in front of you. And if you don't have one at all, you're welcome to keep that and bring it with you when you go. Um, But in Matthew 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, And just real quickly, to give you a little bit of background on this King Herod, this is Herod the Great. And we don't learn a ton about him from the scriptures because he died when Jesus was just a toddler. But he was a king appointed by Rome to rule over the state of Israel. And this was the state that Rome had now claimed as their own, even though God had made them a free people. And so the Jews who lived in Israel couldn't stand Herod because he extended the Roman rule over the Jewish people who were supposed to be free. Deep within the psyche of the Jewish people was the idea that they were a free people under God. God had freed them in the Exodus, and and for them to be ruled by anyone other than God went against the very heart of their identity. So for that reason alone, they resented Herod ruling over them at all. We don't tend to do well with authority that we don't think should be there that's over us. Uh, In college, I went to a pretty strict Christian college that was super rigid and had lots of rules, and it it kind of, uh, people gravitated toward it who loved authority. And we had an RA on our floor my freshman year who absolutely loved the power that he had over everybody on our floor. Uh, He would barge into our rooms uh, without knocking because he had a key and he had that power. We would come into our rooms and he had rifled through all of our stuff and seized all the contraband, which included music with a beat and non-King James Bibles. And, and so, so there was all kinds of resentment that built up over this authority that we perceived just really shouldn't be there. And I know for me, he was a year younger than me. His parents were paying all of his bills, and I was on my own. And so it was very hard for me to look at him as a rightful authority. And, and I won't be able to go into all the pranks that ended up getting played on that guy because of the resentment of his authority. Um, one big one ended with about a foot of freshly popped popcorn covering the floor in his dorm room because we just don't like authority that we don't think should be there. And, and Herod was ruling people who didn't think he should ever be their king. So there were regular uprisings, there were attempts to overthrow Herod and his power, but beyond just being an authority that shouldn't be there, he was an evil, paranoid dictator. He was suspicious of everybody around him, including people in his own family. He was always worried that people were trying to steal his wife, so he had people executed, including one of his own uncles, to protect his marriage. Uh, He fought even harder to protect his reign and would have people crucified and left up on the crosses for days just to show everybody that you don't mess with Herod the Great. So he ruled with fear. And he ruled by giving himself a powerful title. He called himself the King of the Jews, even though he wasn't a purebred Jew. This infuriated the Jewish leaders because they knew that he wasn't the rightful heir to David's throne. And so one day he circulated some false genealogies to kind of convince everybody that it was okay, that he was legitimate. But they they knew he was faking it. They knew that he was lying. And when they found that out, they resented him all the more. So this king of the Jews ruled with fear, ruled with a title. He ruled with lies. And also he ruled with manipulation. Uh, The people in his day, a great sorrow in their life was that the temple that Solomon had built that they worshipped in had been destroyed. So King Herod decided to give them an elaborate gift to get them on his side. And so he built a temple. And so he was building the temple where they could worship, giving them the really expensive gift, hoping that that would keep them on his side so that he could kind of keep them with him even when he flew off into a rage. And then as his final sick act, as he was kind of headed toward his death, he wanted to make sure that there was mourning in the land when he died. 
So he had the most popular Jewish leaders imprisoned, and he ordered that at the moment he died that they would be put to death so that there'd be mourning and weeping all throughout the land when he died. Now, fortunately, when he was almost dead, some of his family members freed those Jewish leaders and the plan didn't work. But that's just a little bit of what history tells us about this Herod. So we keep reading in this passage, Matthew 2, 1 again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. So these wise men, we don't know how many, they they see the star that appears at the birth of Jesus, and then they come to worship the king. And the first place they go to find the king is into Herod's palace because they think that the only place that a young king ever would have been born would be in the palace in one of the most prominent cities in the region. But this new king was a different kind of king. And he had a different kind of power, different kind of authority, different kind of reign that that doesn't come from living in a fortified palace in a rich city. But they go to Herod, the, the old king of the Jews, and they ask him, so where's this new king of the Jews? We want to worship him. And you can imagine how this paranoid dictator would respond to that. What do you mean there's a new king of the Jews? This is a major threat to his power. So he calls his prophets together and he says, okay, guys, according to the Bible, where's this Messiah supposed to be born? Um, Where where is he going to be? I I need to find him. And they say, in Bethlehem. So, So that had to kind of surprise Herod and surprise the Magi because Bethlehem was not a prominent city. It was just kind of a rural little country town. Bethlehem was where the rednecks were. People who who lived in Bethlehem, they they think that pro wrestling is real, and they like NASCAR, and they blow off fireworks all throughout the year for no particular reason. That's not where a king comes from. So he's surprised and probably a little bit irritated because Herod had a summer palace in Bethlehem. So that's where he would go for rest. So when he needed to go and recharge his batteries and rest up so he could come back and do a better job being a murderous dictator, he would go to Bethlehem to get recharged. And now he finds out that the guy who is claiming his throne is born in the place that had been the center of his rest before. So he's paranoid, he's mad, he's irritated by this whole thing, but but he doesn't kill the wise men for saying there's a new king. He doesn't kill the prophets for saying there's a new king to be born in Bethlehem. He attempts to manipulate the situation so that he can find that king, so he can, quote-unquote, worship him. Verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So notice how Herod, who is clinging to his throne, does not want there to be another king. But the people who are looking for the Messiah, who are looking for the one who's come to save, they rejoice exceedingly when they find that he's there. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Herod claimed that he wanted to worship them, but God made sure that that plan didn't work out. He made sure that Herod didn't get to Jesus, that he was protected because Jesus had a mission. So verse 13, it says, Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. So Herod tries to find Jesus so he can have him killed, but he gets tricked by the wise men who never return to him, and he says, you don't mess with Herod. And then he orders this massacre of the innocents. And these, these children who die are considered the first Christian martyrs, that, that they die uh, for, for the sake of the kingdom. But God was more than a step ahead of Herod the whole time. And by the time this decree came down that Jesus um, would be, would, was supposed to be executed, he was safe in Egypt, and he was there until Herod died. So you have Herod, who's this brutal king who gets his power over people by causing them to fear, by his lies, by his false title, by his manipulation. He's one king in this Christmas story. So let's rewind and compare him to the true king. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So just by way of background, the way that people got married in the ancient Middle East wasn't the same as people get married today. We tend to go from dating to an engagement to marriage. Um, that's how it was in the 90s. I know that there's an app involved in there somewhere now, but that uh, came after I was dating. And, uh, but for them, the way it worked is that they would barely know each other, and then they would go into a betrothal that was often arranged by their parents. And this was a very strong engagement. Uh, unlike engagement today, betrothal was legal, and it was a binding relationship that was taken probably more seriously in their culture than our culture even takes marriage. To break up a betrothal, you had to get a divorce. And the only reason that someone was allowed to, to do so was if one of the two were found to be sexually immoral. In this betrothal period, it usually lasted a year. Um, it was a lot like marriage, except for they weren't physically intimate yet. They didn't live together yet. And then after that year, they would be married. 
But here's Mary, likely a teenage girl at this point, who, who hadn't been a perfect person, but certainly had been faithful to her God, and God saw fit to make her the one that the long-expected king would be born through. So she becomes pregnant, and there's no human father because the father is the Holy Spirit, and then Joseph finds out. And we might read this story and think, well, yeah, obviously Joseph believed it. You know, he would believe a story like that because back in their day, they were way more superstitious. They were way more open to the supernatural. So if she comes along and says, God is the father of this baby, he might be prone to believe it, but we wouldn't believe it. We're more skeptical. We're a little smarter than that today. But according to this story, Joseph was just as skeptical. Verse 19, it says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph had a hard time believing this story too. He, he didn't believe her story at first when she came and said, I'm pregnant, but there hasn't been another man. He, he was ready to divorce her because of that. But he loved this woman. He, he didn't know what had happened. He was, he was probably shocked by this whole thing. He didn't want to embarrass her. He didn't want to shame her. So he's just going to divorce her quietly. They could go their separate ways. He didn't want this to be a fight. He didn't believe it easily either. So if you struggle to believe the stories and the promises of the Bible, you're, you're not alone. And the hope is that God can intervene to, to give us faith, which is what God does here. Verse 20, it says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So God shows up, and he says, Joseph, this baby is from the Holy Spirit, so marry her. And Joseph does. He knows what this will mean. He knows that people will probably treat Mary like an outcast. He knows that Jesus will be considered to be illegitimate. He knows that this won't necessarily go well for this baby who's coming, but he believes what God says, and, and he marries her. And Jesus enters into this story now, and he's entering into a, a rough-looking family background. He's entering in among uh, some scandal, but still he's the king. Because his power didn't come from, from having a good background or from having a good history. His power came from who he was. And who this king was was explained well in his names. And there are a couple of names that he's given here. One, obviously, is Jesus. And Jesus was a Hellenized version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. So Jesus is the one who came to save. In contrast with Herod. Herod was the king who ruled, who clamped down on people, who wanted to get something from the people. He wanted more power. He wanted to step on people. He wanted to extract something from the people. He wanted to take his taxes and take his power from them. But Jesus is the one who came to give. He's the one who came to rescue. He's the one who came to save. It's also significant that Mary and Joseph didn't come up with this name for Jesus. It was given to them. I mean, for us, we, we don't have as much significance in the names that we name our babies. You know, we look through a baby name book, we laugh at half of them, and then we kind of pick one that sounds nice. 
But for them, the names meant something. To name somebody that God saves meant that they, they thought that child had a significant future. It had significant meaning. And the fact that they weren't the ones who gave him that name meant that this was a baby unlike any other. Because when you named someone in the Bible, you were saying that you had authority over them. When, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden and, and there were all the animals around them, God told Adam to name the animals because Adam had authority over the animals. He, he was allowed to do that because in a certain sense they were his. And God says this in Isaiah 43.1, I have called you by my name, you are mine. So to name someone is to kind of claim authority over them. In some ways it's to kind of be superior to them. This still happens today in high school when people get nicknames that stick Usually you got that nickname from somebody that was socially superior to you. Um, so, so the high school quarterback can name everybody on his team. He's got nicknames for all of those players, and those nicknames can stick because that guy who kind of had some social authority is the one who gave them the names. But Mary and Joseph don't have the authority to name their child. God gives this child the name. Because this wasn't just an ordinary child. Yes, he, he was human, completely human. He was all man, but at the same time, he was divine. And they didn't have authority over him the same way that other parents have authority over their kids because this child was before them. This child was their creator. This child was there at the very foundation of the world. This child had authority over all things, and so they didn't have permission to name him. But God says his name is God saves. He also says here that his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That, that he is God, he is the one who created all things by a word, but also he's God who's very much here with us. Which is tremendous power. I mean, this is God who is the king, and he's the king not only of the Jews, but the king of the entire universe, but still he came to be with us. We know the circumstances of his birth from, from the Gospel of Luke. There's no room for them in the inn, so they go back to the manger. He's born into the most humble of circumstances, in the most unsanitary conditions, to a pretty messed up family line, to a single mom who had next to nobody probably believing her story, except the one she was betrothed to, and that's only because an angel appeared to him. And he's born to this young girl, makes himself totally helpless, crying, sleeping in a stable, and he's the other king in this story. So there are two kings here. They're two powerful people, and they're both flexing their muscles, and they're both showing their might. Both of them are showing their power, but power in the kingdoms of the world looks different than power looks in the kingdom of God. There's one king here who's ruling by striking fear in the hearts of his people. And then another king who came and emptied himself of all of his power, willing to be born into a questionable family line under questionable circumstances but he brought peace and joy. There's one king here who was always seeking out the high places and making sure that nobody threatened his rule. The other king came to the low place. And then Jesus grew up and he spent the rest of his life going even lower until finally he ended up at the lowest of all possible places, crucified on a criminal's cross outside the city and then in a cold, dark tomb. You have one king here who is taking everything that he can and one king gives everything he can. One king lies and manipulates to extract false praise from people. The other one gives everything to create genuine worship in people. One king keeps his subjects down in fear. The other one lifts them up and frees them in love. And the invitation that Christmas gives us is to come under the rule of King Jesus. 
Bob Dylan saying that you're going to have to serve somebody. And all of us serve some king. It's not a matter of whether we have a king, it's a matter of which one. There's always someone or something that rules over us and reigns over us and holds sway over our hearts. But so often the kings that we serve are just like Herod. They keep us in in fear. So if our king is status and human approval, the human approval that we get maybe from, from the jobs we have or the place that we occupy on the socioeconomic ladder, then we live in fear that if I lose that job, then I lose who I am. I lose my identity. I lose my sense of wellness because I no longer have that thing. So I live in fear that I could lose that thing that my king's giving me. Our kings also manipulate us with promises that end up being false. They say that, that a happy Christmas is yours if you have enough stuff and if you've fixed enough relationships, that you can engineer your life just right over the next year so you can finally get to that hallmark perfect Christmas, and that's where happiness is. But then you get to even the best of Christmases, and it's incomplete. It, it's not quite enough. And sometimes it's just like this expensive gift that, that's in our lives, and our, our king keeps telling us that, that, that this can be yours if you just have one more year if you live under my tyranny. And they just don't measure up. Or, or our kings will lie to us, and they'll say, you'll be happy if you just have a little bit more. If you have a little bit more money, a little bit more pleasure, then you'll be satisfied. And they hold these carrots out in front of us that we chase, but we get there and they never quite satisfy Because like Herod, our kings really only extract from us. They only take. They take more heart, more attention, more effort, and we're ground down by their ever-increasing demands. But the invitation of Christmas is to bow before King Jesus. He's a king who takes our fear and puts it to death on a cross. By bearing our guilt and our shame and the wrath we deserve, taking it all for us so that we can face our creator as his forgiven sons and daughters. Jesus is a king who speaks truth, whose words ring true. And if you're here tonight and you say, I don't know if I believe any of this stuff, I'm just not uh, into this Christianity thing, I'm here because it's Christmas Eve, my family dragged me here, I would encourage you, just in case this is true, spend some time reading the Bible. Don't dismiss it without reading it first. I'd encourage you to read this gospel of Matthew and just see if those words don't ring true to you. Just see if sometimes you don't read some of them and they don't just cut you to the heart and you say, I don't even want this to be true, but I think it is. Because when we read the words of Jesus, his words just resonate deeply with us and they've resonated so deeply in the hearts of millions of people for 2,000 years now that millions of lives have been changed by, by the true words of this king. Jesus is a king who didn't come to extract anything from us, but to give. He says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As God, he didn't need anything from us. We didn't have anything to offer him. We didn't have anything to give him. There wasn't anything he came to get. He came to freely give us life. He came to freely give us what we need. He came to give us that thing that all of our hearts are after. He came not to oppress us, but to liberate us and give us the gift of forgiveness. So the news of Christmas, if we'll bow before Jesus, is not news that will terrify, but it's good news of great joy offered to all people. It's the news that there can be peace on whoever God's favor rests, and his favor is resting on you if you believe. 
The good news for us is that this king gave us everything and gave it to us for free. And so if you're here and you say, I'm far from him, but I know that I need this. I know that I'm guilty. I know that I deserve God's punishment. I know I'm separated from him. Don't try to work your way to him because, again, he didn't come to to get anything from you. Just receive that free gift. And the way you receive it is by faith, by believing that he died to pay the price for your sin, by believing that he was buried and that he rose again, and that as Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And to believe in him, certainly we, we repent. We turn from our other kings. We turn from those other things that drove us and ruled over us and reigned over us before. We do have to turn our backs on those other gods to turn to Jesus as God. But when we do, we find that he's the only God who's good. And if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, and you look at your life and it is characterized by fear and anxiety and by believing lies and just being ground down into soul weariness, then Christmas is an opportunity to evaluate which king is on the throne of your life. Because when Jesus reigns, he liberates, he frees, he gives. He gives hope, he gives peace, he gives joy, he gives love. And yeah, it's a, it's a hard life of following him, but it's not a joyless life. It's not a life of being ground down, it's a life of being built up in faith and hope and love in him. The good news for all of us at Christmas is that we can, can bow again and put Jesus back on that throne and see how good it is when there is a good and wise king ruling and reigning over our lives and over our eternities. So let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and we do confess that, that in many ways we, we sense the ways that we put other kings on, on the throne, kings more like Herod. We see it in our fears. We see it in the ways that we've believed lies. We see it in the the weariness of our souls. And and, and so as we see that, we we turn again to you. We turn from being ruled over by those other things. And Jesus, we ask you to come and, and rule and reign in our hearts again. We pray that from our fears, you'd release us. That you'd free us from our anxiety. Free us from our guilt. And we pray that we would have joy in you. Not, not joy that comes from a hallmark perfect holiday, but a deeper joy that comes regardless of what tomorrow looks like. A joy that comes from knowing that Christ came and gave himself and that that Christ is on the throne, ruling and reigning over all things, and that one day you will return. We'll see you face to face and you'll make all things new. Refresh our hope, refresh our joy, refresh our peace, refresh our love as we look at those things, as we see them in you. And transform us into a people that reflect you to those around us. Fill us with your joy, fill us with your spirit, and use us in your, your joyful service, not as we're being ground down, but as we're being lifted up by our good and faithful King. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand and continue to worship him tonight.